Welcome to the Beth and Kelly Show, a weekly Facebook Live conversation between Beth Fortune and Kelly Klingen. That's me. And we've made it into a podcast. Beth Fortune currently serves as Education Director at Wintergrass, the National American String Teachers Association Board, and Chair of the National Council for Orchestral Education. I currently serve as Education Director at Jazz Ed the Washington President at Jazz Education Network, and Jazz Curriculum Officer for Washington Music Educators Association. We have a platform, and we really want to leverage it for positive change. Please hit us up. Let's have a conversation, and uh, let's move our practice as music educators forward. Good evening, folks. Welcome on behalf of the National Association for Music Education and the NAFME Council for Orchestral Education. Thank you for participating in today's town hall. My name is Beth Fortune, and I am the chair of the NAFME Orchestra Council. This town hall is being recorded, and for posterity, I'm going to state that this town hall is taking place right now on June 16th, 2022. And as a reminder, this program is being recorded and tell all your friends because they can circle back and watch later. Today's topic is let's put the festive back in student festivals. I'm going to introduce our panel of esteemed speakers. I'd first like to introduce Corey Benton. She is the orchestra director at Pope High School in Cobb County, Georgia. And she is also a member of the National Board of the American String Teachers Association. Our next speaker is Kelly Klingen. She is the director of education at Seattle Jazz Ed, a nonprofit organization dedicated to racial and gender equity in jazz education. And she is co-host along with myself of the popular music education podcast, The Beth and Kelly Show. And I'd like to introduce Dr. Kelsey Nussbaum, a teacher of undergraduate and graduate coursework in music education at the University of Washington in Seattle. She is also vice chair of the ASTA Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee and on the board of the National String Project Consortium. And myself, I am the chair of the National Council for Orchestral Education, and I am the director of orchestras at Seattle's Ballard High School. So before we get started, I have a couple of brief announcements. First of all, please make sure your audio is muted and feel free to post your questions in the chat. Um, we will all be looking at the chat. And also you are welcome to feel free to speak. This is a true town hall. And in Beth and Kelly show fashion, we are going to have a very conversational approach to the discussion tonight. And everyone is welcome to take part in that. So if you would like to say something, please utilize the hand raise function where you can find that in the reactions down in the bottom of your screen. And we will be watching for hands that go up, okay? Also, please share your feedback with NAFME's Professional Development Committee 
um, and the program org organizers, including suggestions you may have for future programming that NAFME can provide to members. And finally, be sure to check out NAFME's upcoming events and mark your calendar for those. So without further ado, I am going to um, say we are, we are starting this program. To begin with, uh, we are going to quickly go around to all of the speakers and give a tiny little rundown that gives people kind of an idea of what the educational adjudicated performance festival scenario is in their region of the country um, or regions where they have worked. So let's go ahead and start with Corey. Hello, everyone. Um, I am in Georgia and uh, in our area, in our state for sure, um, we have about 25 middle schools, 16 high schools in this particular county that I'm in. And we, everyone is expected to take at least one of your groups to, to L, we call it LGPE, we call it large group performance evaluation. And we go to this every year, you're expected to take at least one group to this performance every year. You can take multiple and most of us take three to, well, yeah, three groups, sometimes four, and there are some take even more, but the expectation is that everyone has to take a group to perform. It is also a part of your evaluation. So that's something that is expected, not just from our uh, music supervisor, but from our principals as well. And at some point they've talked about making it a part of our teacher evaluation. My past has been, I've always participated in, um, in those in LGPE or whatever it used to be called festival uh, when I was younger. And it was something, this, the same concept of, it was the expectation that everyone had to participate as well. Thank you, Corey. Um, there's a lot to unpack there, um, but I would love to hear from Dr. Nussbaum. Now, Dr. Nussbaum, I'm wondering if you might be willing to speak from your perspective as an orchestra teacher in Texas. Uh, yes. Okay. So first, we can be on first name basis um, here. You can okay, see the rest of the time. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I'm I'm currently been in the Pacific Northwest, but the majority, all not the majority, all of my teaching and and growing up schooling even uh, was in the systems that exist in the state of Texas, and so very similar to what Corey was describing is we have a very centrally organized um, adjudication system run by the same body that oversees athletic competitions in the state of Texas called. Um, the University Interscholastic League or UIL. Um, and so for a long time, it was referred to the concert and sight reading contest. Um, and every school very similarly was, a, I think there was an expectation to attend. Um, and that was certainly the case when, when I was a teacher. Um, and it's the sports kind of comes through in a really interesting way. Like our groups are labeled varsity, non-varsity and sub-non-varsity. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, so the parallels uh, are very strong and we followed the same rules for eligibility for a long time as, as sporting events did. That has changed though. Um, and like Corey was saying, it's much more 
evaluative um, in the sense that it is now actually officially called an evaluation and seen as something that is curricular to music organizations in the state of Texas and an expectation um, to attend uh, every year, normally in the spring. And a lot of orchestras participate um, with multiple groups and some of them in multiple events doing both a string only um, and also a full orchestra contest that usually happen about six weeks apart. Okay, wow. Um, very, very organized and set in stone. Um, so Kelly and I, um, we taught together in the same school for many, many years. And we are both from the Seattle region, um, which is under the auspices of the Washington Music Educators Association and our various um, regional MEAs. Um, and Kelly, just jump in here. Yeah. Um, I would say that there is not a requirement, but kind of a little like you're, you're looked on a, a little kind of like people will give you the side eye a little bit if you opt out of attending your regional MEA large group ensemble event. Um, it's more of like a haves and have not situation. Like um, if you are someone who is taking your groups, um, probably your principal is making you, but you also have a booster group that will support that. Right. And if you're not taking kids, it's probably because you have you're like underfunded, there's no mm. booster group, you can't get your principal to release you for a couple of days. Nor would they have yeah. the money to help you get a school bus to go. Right, or pay for your sub or whatever. Right. So it, uh, anyway, but for the haves, the uh, there's like a circuit and like all the colleges have a festival. There's a band one, an orchestra one, and a jazz one. Mm -hmm. And then there's a whole bunch more jazz ones. There's like a true circuit. There's about, you could right. go to two a month jazz festivals. So up in the Pacific Northwest, it is not tied to your teacher evaluation. And um, for the most part, they are not, uh, I guess, a competition between ensembles but students do play to a rubric and that ensemble is rated one, two, or three. And um, so there is ratings and teachers are given that feedback sheet and a small clinic with whomever the clinician might be. And so that's just kind of an overview. And I, I would, am venturing to guess that for most people on this call, there is like we were kind of bookends. Um, Texas and Georgia might be on the left, you know, maybe the right-hand side. <laughs> and, <laughs> and the Pacific Northwest might be on the left-hand side. And um, so there is probably several different shades going on of the same type of thing. Um, but one of the, the things that seems to be common is that we call these festivals. <laughs> now, I, I am going to ask a series of questions to these wonderful panelists. And 
Um, one of the, the first question that I'm going to ask is going to Kelsey. And this is so that Kelsey can unpack some of the research that she's done. And this question um, will have her talking about the, con the conundrum of student groups not winning or failing on the adjudication rubric for a festival <laughs> or not doing well in a contest. There's lots of air quotes going on. Right. For those of you despite, despite, video. yes, despite <laughs> their wonderfulness. Okay. Um, and Kelsey can also unpack the concept of wonderfulness. Um, for instance, the amount of growth that students made to get to this point, even though it might not even register on the rubric. So Kelsey, we'd love to hear about your research. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I was interested because of the structure that I, I described um, in, in Texas where I taught of, of basically the pervasiveness of attending not only this state coordinated UIL event, but on top of it, a lot of groups did voluntary festivals at the end of the school year as well, um, just as like that was paired up with normally a, a trip, right? Um, and so just there was there was so much of this of this participation. And I happened to work in Austin, um, which was had a very wide diversity of school campuses. Um, and I mean that in terms of economics and academics, as well as student um, racial identity. And so because of the context in that district, I saw Kelly was talking about the haves and the have nots effect going into place. And so we would see for, for strings, um, you know, we'd have 20, 25 orchestras uh, show up for the same contest that all came from very different schools with very different access to resources, um, material, like different access to instruments and students with different access to lessons, practice time, rehearsal time, uh, even campus scheduling was really different. Some schools were able to have these hierarchy audition-based ensembles and others had grade level ensembles with mixed levels, um, but we're having to follow the same rubrics and the same structure of um, that varsity, non-varsity that, that I described earlier. And so there was just a really wide range of experiences that the students were having and that teachers were having when they'd show up on these stages. Um, and one of the really, and so I, I, from my own experience, decided to do a study uh, with for teachers and instrumental teachers. There was mostly strings with one band person as well, but pretty similar experiences um, who all worked at Title I schools in, in Texas and participated regularly in this event um, to kind of look to see how location and context shaped their, their experiences um, in these. And what, what a lot of them talked about, which mirrored my own personal experiences, um, is how the challenges, the structural challenges that they face teaching in um, Title I schools were things that had to do with what I mentioned was scheduling students' ability to practice their own ability to have outside of campus, outside of school hour rehearsals 
um, also intermix with the um, academic challenges the schools were facing, um, where they had really high expectations for standardized test scores seen as underperforming campuses, and that all of these things mixed together to make the journey of preparing for these expected contests and festivals that much more challenging because their starting line was farther back than a lot of their counterparts who were showing up again to the same stages with the same judges. Um, and the one of the things too is in Texas, these are all public record. Uh, you could right now go onto a website and look up uh, results by school campus, by a teacher um, going back to I think 2006. Um, and so the, that is something that is widely known. And so there's that extra professional stress combined mm -hmm. with this. Um, and so that idea of failing, failing in spite of wonderfulness was, was a quote from one of my participants in this study. Um, and it was really interesting because they were actually talking about how their students struggled in standardized testing when they, when they said that quote. Uh, and not necessarily realizing in that moment that they had described the exact same phenomena as it pertained to the uh, adjudicated festivals as well. Um, and that it was a really challenging thing where they could see how far their own students had come to show up to these extra rehearsals to be on that stage that day. Um, but all of that kind of evaporated when the score was, you know, not what they any you know not what they were hoping for um and no matter how much you as a teacher want to say the numbers don't matter when you know you see trophies being handed out when you see those numbers projected on a screen in the lobby and you see you know what other schools are getting and other teachers are getting it you know kind of defeats all of that um it seems to sometimes negate the the hard work and wonderfulness that went into making that performance meaningful for those students well that doesn't sound very festive <laughs> i mean that is just i think something a lot of us have thought in the back of our mind but now you've really gathered data around that my blood oh. pressure has elevated right. i'm like <laughs> I look like I've got some sweats coming on that I have that those feelings of standing like in the lobby at the room where they announce at the Reno Jazz Festival and walking in there and it's like me and about 150 white dudes in tuxedos and looking at these scores on the wall and is your one high enough to get to play again and feeling like a complete failure that my kids got second place, you know? Oy, oy. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. And so everything you're saying, Kelsey, really rings true. Now, Corey, I would love to hear from you. Um, in our planning meeting for this, we talked about, for those of us that are required to participate in these events, um, and for whom these results play into even up to your teacher evaluation. What are some thoughts you have and some ideas that you might have to mitigate damage that this might cause before, during, and after um, you, you and your students going to these events? Um, and 
also we talked about wanting to touch on how has the doubling down on these types of activities affected you and your students this particular year, which is we're all in a new world now. So Corey, we'd love to hear from you. Okay. Um, I taught briefly in Texas and I forgot about that whole announcing. Oh my gosh, I'm like Kelly, the stress um, of it all. Well, we, um, just like in Texas, we have our state MEA regulates our, um, our guidelines, our rubrics, and we have not officially gone to where the, um, where the process is a part of your evaluation, but your principal can use it as a part of your evaluation. Um, and the, in the instances that I'll, I'll just say that in instances that I've seen that they've only used it more so to what, regardless of what your scores are. Um, unfortunately, some administrators are not, they, they feel as if music is a, is Sanskrit and they don't understand it. But, um, um, but as far as mitigating, how have I, how have I done this in the past? I've been teaching for remember, years. And so, um, it has always been a very stressful time and some of the, it's taken me a while to really get more comfortable with how I, I do this process. So some of the ways that I think I've kind of got my students a little more comfortable with that process and how to not make it so stressful is that we do in the beginning of the school year, I'm high school, so they've already had they've already had the experience of doing it at least seventh grade and eighth grade um, with their middle school teachers. So when they come to me, we talk about really the purpose, like why do we do this? Uh, because some kids, just like the rest of us, they get performance anxiety, and we talk about the purpose of it, and and we talk about what we can gain from it. So from the beginning of the school year, I do a lot of talk. Uh, we go through the terms that they use tone, you know, what does this mean, da, da, da. And we, we rate and rank our performances when we get ready to do our concerts. We do that, we have kids come in who have, um, who have no musical uh, background in our, in our school. There's some of our transition students that have not played, I won't say no musical background, but they haven't played an instrument. And so they come in and they give us a rating. And for my students, that is a huge ego boost because they really, they're experiencing the music. They're not saying, well, this F sharp is out of tune as opposed to, oh, that was supposed to be a minor chord. You guys played a major chord. So the kids that we, so we do performances for one way we can kind of get over that is we perform it for students uh, before we actually do the actual performance. And we do that in the fall because our uh, festival LGPE is in the spring. And for me, it's in February. <sighs> Um, Valentine's Day, that's how we say love. Um, but um, <laughs> I love you, here's your rating. Um, <laughs> so those are some of the ways I do it. I, we, and then we, we have participated in workshops that are the same exact format, but there's no rating to it. And we go through, we get a clinic. I, I'm a firm believer in, because I am fortunate enough to have money to, uh, to bring in clinicians. We talk, you know, I have bring them in, they work with my kids. Um, but I, the, the way that I've gotten through for me to feel more comfortable, because the kids is just what they do. I don't know if they at some point feel one way or the other about it, but to get them more comfortable, a little bit more comfortable as far as the stress of it that day, I am the one who brings the stress to them. They can tell if I'm nervous, then they're nervous. So what I do to help me not be nervous so they're not nervous is that I try to do things throughout the year. We talk about what the words mean, you know, we do exercises. Um, we talk about 
the one, but we also talk about the one performance is not an end all be all for everything. And we also go through and say, you know, no one's perfect. You're going to miss a note. And if you miss this note, goodbye note, don't dwell on that. So we, I try to talk to them a lot about that as well. We do that period, you know, uh, just things to boost their confidence when they play and then missing this one rhythm, this one note, this one chord, or these five notes or these 10, that's not the end of it. It doesn't mean that all the work you've done is nothing because the number is not a one, two, three, or four, because we have four levels. Um, and we always want to strive for the best. So, you know, we do our best to try to get that one. But if you don't get the one, it doesn't mean your life is over. So that's kind of some of the, the big thing that I do with my kids to try to get through it. And as far as doubling down this year, this past year, um, this school year, we did go back to going, um, going to the school and having LGPE and everything. But because of COVID, we were given grace and we were allowed to record our performance. And my school is one of the, the three schools that took advantage of it because normally when we do our performance, we have maybe five people in the audience because it's during the day. Parents are working, people are not able to come. Sometimes schools can't stay. So we were allowed to record. And this year was, I felt like for the first time with my students, especially coming back, they were the most relaxed because it was a concert and they're used to concerts. So that's how we handled um, LGPE this year that we won't have that option again for next year, but we took advantage of it this year. I love that they gave you that option and that you took it. Um, that's, it also takes um, strength and courage to take an option like that and to say to, you know, yourself first, but then also to help the students understand, you know what, we don't have to stress ourselves out this much this year we're already stressed out. Let's take this opportunity to do it this way. I will say that, that, that amazingly, I gave the kids the choice and it was almost 50-50. The one, most of the, a lot of, well, half the kids really wanted to go because that's what they're used to. But I also gave the parents the option because they never get to see their kids perform. And so I think once I gave the parents the option, it that kind of overwhelmingly went towards, let's have it as a concert so I can actually see my kids perform this music and not have to listen, you know, wait to get this recording whenever. Right, right. And with all these, I guess this is kind of this middle of the road, like we're kind of coming back and we're not 100% fully back to the way we were before, but um, I don't know. I mean, sometimes these second op options to do things, I feel like that might be a good thing for us to continue keeping um, for the future. Um, so thank you very much, Corey. That was wonderful. Um, Kelly, we're gonna kind of shift gears. A little bit for your question, because in our planning meeting, folks, we noticed something about this panel of, of people. We were like, okay, um, what we have here is a panel of women. Um, this was not necessarily intentional. We gathered, we gathered the, the voices we really thought would be best for this panel, but <laughs> it ended up being a panel of women. Um, and Kelly, I would love 
for you to talk a little bit about how your personal identity um, has shaped your experiences at these events, because yeah. it's a teacher event. I mean, it, it's a thing that happens to us too. It's not just the kids. Whoa, dude. Okay. First of all, I feel like we need to state for the record uh, I have recently learned that I am what's called a disruptor. This means that I um, I like to um, burn things down and then keep the things that are cool and like rebuild it. That's kind of, uh, I didn't know that not everyone thought that way. <laughs> um, so, I, you know, I am uh, born and raised in Seattle and I have spent um, 39 of my 43 years here. So I'm pretty Seattle and I, um, grew up in, in Seattle public schools and was lucky enough to go to a middle school and high school that had really epic music departments. And part of that means a booster group. And part of that means that your teacher takes you to a bunch of festivals. And so since the, and, and it's an option here, it's not mandated. So, um, so that's unique to grow up in Seattle and to have had the experience of going to all the festivals. And I don't just mean the local circuit. I mean, the Hampton jazz festival in Idaho and the Reno jazz festival, um, in Reno and <clears throat> playing at things like the North Sea Jazz Festival and the Montreux Jazz Festival, like big ones. And, um, and then taking students to them, those same festivals as a teacher. Um, and I think, and now I'm watching it through my daughter's eyes, which is really fascinating as well. Um, but as a student, I, uh, thought they were fun, right? You, you go on a trip and you get to share a hotel room with all your friends. And then you walk around all day and listen to other kids play and some kind of famous people do clinics. And then you get to play and then you have a clinician give you a little thing afterwards. And they would usually tell us that we sounded awesome and we would get um, a good score. And then we would um, sometimes get to play in the finals and how like cool and exciting, but also stressful that was. But what I remember more than anything as a student and as a teacher is how impossible it was for anybody to have fun once we found out we either did not make the finals or that we made the finals and didn't win. Like all of the positive energy and fun and um, collaborative feelings of spirit and all of that musicality and all of those beautiful things that the minute the awards started, it was like my life was over. Um, that so-and-so didn't get a solo award or, oh, if we had played this song, we would have won first place. And just like really um, feelings that to me don't resonate with music making um, or like how I want to, the, the mood I want to be in around kids, I guess. Um, and then I taught in um, Cal Northern California 
and then lived in Amsterdam for a short time. And at where I was there, Pinky, mommy's talking. I'm sorry. Uh, where I was there, they had no music departments like what we have here. They didn't know what I was talking about. You teach band? What? And so then to be somewhere, not only where music wasn't in the schools in the same way, but there definitely weren't performance opportunities. That was really interesting. Um, and then Beth and I started teaching together and taking our kids to festivals together. And I think we found some really cool ways to make it more fun for ourselves and for our um, students, you know, playing songs that we just knew the scorekeepers wouldn't know what to do with, you know, like we'd sort of tank our score on purpose to make the musical fun choice. And, and the kids were on board with that. And, um, you know, like we tried to bring as much spirit to the situation as possible, but it always boiled down to the awards ceremony for me. I don't know, Beth. And some heavy toxicity, like you mentioned, yes, um, yeah. both from the teacher's perspective of, oh man, I feel an expectation. I'm from this high performing school. I feel an expectation that we need to um, either win or be in the top three. Um, and the, the just feeling of utter, like I am a total loser <laughs> if yeah. that does, if that's not the case. Um, and also seeing, um, seeing kids look 100% deflated and, um, watching that toxicity just like melt like an ice cube into your program, um, when you return from the event, um, and, you know, kids running to the, to the bathroom and crying, you know, and it's just like, these are, these types of moments are some of my worst moments as a music educator, actually. I'm going to be honest. Um, mm -hmm. Kelly and I are known for taking trophies and throwing them in the trash. Uh, I'm just going to be honest. They almost never made it their, on their way home. <laughs> Do you remember um, the year where we, uh, had like a flash sale and we got rid oh, yeah. of like 30 years of trophies like yep. five bucks a piece liquidation <laughs> <laughs> yeah and so um you know and it's always been a topic for us and so i can say from my perspective as the chair of the orchestra council as a person who has a chair in the inner circle of NAFME. Um, and knowing that a, a great portion of these events are under the auspices of NAFME and or the state MEAs, which are part of NAFME, and our more regional MEAs, which are also part of NAFME, um, I, I feel it is really time for us to bring this conversation to the table. It's time for us to have a conversation. Now, this panel and I are very, very mindful that. Uh... Oh, no. <laughs> I 
experience, our job security, et cetera. And, um, and I just wanted to put that out there before we begin opening it up, opening it up for um, folks to share your narratives and or ask questions. But we would love at this point to open up this discussion to those of you who are participating. So I'll remind you if you could please use the raise your hand function and all of us are also watching the chat. I'm gonna jump in real quick because yes. uh, Beth, I don't think you realize you froze and cut out in the middle of your, yeah. Um. I'm sorry. That's, it was fantastic. Oh, thank you. Um, okay. Um, so but let me just, so let me just really quickly reiterate, just in case folks didn't hear that. Um, this panel and I are mindful of, uh, by us sharing our narratives, um, we are being mindful to not skew the conversation um, too much. And we are also mindful of the privileges that we have um, to be able to share our opinions. Um, we are in positions of power and, work experience and job security, et cetera. So I just wanted everyone to um, hear that before we opened it up to hear other people's narratives, thoughts, and questions. Um, and while we're, while people are maybe thinking about their questions, just to, to follow up on, on that statement from Beth is just to say that um, something uh, as she hinted at about the gender um, topic, but like oftentimes I, from, from my own experience of being a young teacher doing these things um, and remembering that and also being um, in, a, in a state or in an area where, where there is maybe stronger, I mean, it's everywhere, but in Texas, the gender dynamic is especially strong. Um, and so just acknowledging that because these types of events hold professional status associated with them that for people who are farther away from those those dominant groups whatever we're talking about um, whether we're talking about age or gender or um, race or ethnicity that there then becomes an extra layer of pressure to perform well due to the ways in which they uh, affirm and assign professional standards and power often associated with success in events like this that have this visibility um, in our in our field. Thank you, Kelsey. While we're waiting, can I? Um, I want you to. Yes. Something that I didn't touch on and I, we haven't mentioned yet is that um, maybe all of us have had and some people who are here have had the opportunity to have student teachers or to do maybe artists in residence at your a college near you or somewhere with some students. And I think if we were able to, um, as professionals, even though we don't have the control to change some of the things that happen with the process, of getting students when they're in going through their education courses to see the process. So I'm always happy when I have a have student teacher or observers come in the spring semester because they get to see 
how this process is. And there are things that you just don't know until you go through it. I mean, that's just the way it is. It's hard. You can't teach every single thing that happens in school. You know, that's just, that's just not how it works. But for them to be able to see it, and even at the collegiate level, kids can, if they get the opportunity, they can see this is the process of what you were expected to do, or this is how it goes. And maybe we can help navigate, help, you know, future educators navigate through this process and, and alleviate some of that stress that comes with, you know, this is what your career is dependent upon. If your kids, you know, I mean, so alleviate those kinds of factors that have caused us to just dread that, that time of the year. Well, and I think along with that too, is also mentoring young teachers into our professional organizations and showing them how they can also not only understand the procedure from the teacher perspective, but then start to understand the procedure from the policy side of things and socializing um, early career teachers into being engaged and involved in professional organizations. Because I think that that's something um, that can seem off limits or or you only get to be have a, a voice once you've, again, established yourself in certain ways. Um, but in, instead trying to get, um, encourage teachers to be involved um, in leadership positions earlier on um, and broadening the scope of who's having these conversations and not just saving it for the established or veteran teachers um, because a diversity of perspectives is what allows us and that includes all stages of careers allows us to have more robust conversations as, as organizations. Absolutely. And I was just thinking to myself how, at least in our region, it boils down to the regional or local MEA needing to create these experiences. And what inevitably happens is a real worn out team of teachers has to throw it together and use you know, historic, how we've done it in the past, because we don't have time to sit and reinvent. And so we hit go on it, make it happen, and nothing ever changes. So which is where someone like me get hopes that I can swoop in and help because I am no longer affiliated with the public schools, and I don't have the same um, constraints. And so I get to be a person who could maybe have host a festival as reimagined um, and, and maybe try to explore some different ways of doing things and um, be responsive to, to feedback moving forward and try and create maybe a new way of doing these that maybe would feel better um, to a wider range of students and teachers. And uh, yeah, so well, I like it seems too. It seems like potentially like being able to collaborate with community entities. Yes. Might be a good idea. Um, so a question to the crowd to get you started, if you have something to share, if you could wave a magic wand and change the time-honored structures that we're used to of these educational adjudicated performance events, what are some changes that you would choose to institute if you could? 
And this is, as I said, being recorded. This is a NAFME national event that we're having right now. So please do share because we at NAFME really do want to hear your ideas. Ron Gearhardstein from Washington State said that he is interested in hearing from the panel unique ideas to bring the running and management of a festival to do something different. Um, can, a, can be a small thing or a big thing. So panel, we'd love to hear your ideas. I'm feeling hot, so I'm going to pop right now. That's what we say at work, pop when you're hot. Oh. <laughs> uh, I think that the things that um, kids and teachers and families value really highly uh, about festivals are the opportunity to perform for other kids, um, the opportunity to get feedback, um, and the opportunity to miss school. Um, and I, <laughs> and I think, um, uh, the opportunity to prepare for the performance experience and, and what will come from it. So that's stuff I'd like to keep. Um, I think that cost travel, um, my dog is growling about this. She thinks I'm really onto something here. Um, I think that there are a lot of, um, there, that I could spend an hour unpacking all of the reasons that we should remove competition um, from what we're doing. Uh, but, and I think that bumping up access is key. So I would do, I would like to see something or what I think I'll try first um, because I am a community organization now is um, an invitational, uh, I would definitely have a chance for, for all of the groups to perform. I would probably put some parameters around song choice, making sure that um, there's maybe one shared song that everyone's doing, or maybe they do that together, um, like a giant band or orchestra type thing. Um, I would uh, probably have some framing around what students wear and programming so that we're making sure there are BIPOC and female composers represented um, in what music is being performed. Uh, I would make sure that the panel of clinicians were um, extremely diverse and that the educational clinic was on stage for everyone to get a little piece of and I would remove anything having to do with scores that's just like a quick idea of the thing of some things I, I want to try like next year in Kelly, a festival um, that I might make I don't know <laughs> Kelly, I was thinking about Kelsey's research um, a second ago when you were talking about some of your ideas and one of the other things that I would love to see instituted as part of the pre-festival preparations that directors do um, before heading to the festival is to have a short narrative that they compose that talks about the growth that the students have made on this particular repertoire and the learning that's happened on this particular or through this particular experience um, that can 
that the judge needs to read before that ensemble performs. And so that, that, yeah, so that that would um, inform the judge's clinic, first of all, and then second, maybe even play into the score if the score is something that is important. There will be no score, but also um, no, no numbers, no score, just commentary. And um, I would try and budget in for the clinicians, adjudicators to be able to come for a, uh, maybe a clinic at the school before the festival as well. Yes. Riffing here on some cool ideas. Corey. Yes, I was some of the same stuff that you were saying, Kelly. Um, I think definitely a a more uh, inclusive repertoire. So, or more pieces that, are not necessarily, I mean, for sure, BIPOC, for sure. But I'm also thinking even something that is not as stringent as not necessarily, you might not want to play Aladdin, but something that has something that appeals more to the kids, that would be something that could appeal to the kids. It doesn't necessarily mean to put all pop songs in there, but there are some pop literature that is extremely challenging. And and so I think would be even better than some of the songs that are possibly on some of our list. So I would say inclusion of some of some just something that's not considered and you don't snub your nose at, at pop music, you know. Um, and I also we um, have we do have the option of having a, a conducting judge and we have the option of having a clinic. But I think if it were standard to have a clinician, just like Kelly was saying, that is the clinician. And to be honest with you, I don't understand. I get the clinician, but I don't want a clinic necessarily on that song because I'm probably never going to play those songs again with those kids. I want a clinician to tell me what can I do with this for the next thing that I do? So how can I move forward? Mm-hmm. And most clinicians usually focus on, in, in my experience, have been on the song. And I'm like, well, yeah, thank you. But we're not playing this again after th- that moment. So I would say something like that, you know, um, and also fees as well. Fees are, are astronomical and some people have the money to pay for it. So I would, th- I think that counties, if you are required to perform, then that should be a part of your county budget that you have, they would pay for at least one of your groups. And for us, that's not, and we have to pay for it through our boosters and our orchestra accounts outside of county funds. So those are some of the things, the small things that I would do Thank you for saying all that out loud, Corey. And I made some assumptions um, because I forgot that we are not all in Seattle at this moment and maybe all don't know uh, Beth and myself, but like we have been doing the, uh, the alt strings thing (laughs) and the jazz band. I mean, like the concert band improvising and stuff for years and been like in in deep doo-doo with judges for doing that but it's like a major core value (laughs) um of ours so I love hearing you say that and I want that going on in Georgia too I love it so much too because it really calls into practice NAFME's national standards. Um, When students are exercising choice and um, like, I would love, I would love if there was a requirement that one of the pieces you perform is a student generated choice. And 
they have to go through responding and connecting in order to make this choice as a team um, and outline why this would be a good choice and um, explain the reasons why they like it and why it would be a great piece for their ensemble and then you know the the steps they went through to prepare it for the stage um, there's so many ways that we could really really infuse all of this with learning besides just preparing for a performance kelsey do you have anything yeah well i think that um i coming from my perspective um in as from teaching in texas we never a clinic was never part part of the event for us um and yeah you just got you just got the written comments and that was it it wasn't not even like the i know some places do recorded comments but it was purely a written comment sheet um and i think they've a rubric has become more standardized but for a long time it wasn't even a rubric um and so i think for me there are i in these places like Georgia and like Texas and others that have it, have these events as more compulsory, whether explicitly or implicitly. Um, I, I would like to see the evaluative element, like if that, as it feels that is very much what we're moving towards to in those instances, where that is really something that is contained um, in a way that keeps it academic and then have separate events that are these public celebrations of music making and performance. Because I feel like now they started out as festivals, which were intended to be these community facing events, mm. but they've in Texas, from my experience, have taken on a different life form as being something that yeah. almost feels like a standardized test. And so, but at the same time still involves going to a public, you know, a, normally a really nice performance venue in your area to play to an empty hall with three judges tables in the middle of the school day. And it's just a very inauthentic musical experience. Um, and so if we, if these organizations choose to retain having it as an evaluation, you know, going to that middle of the road option that um, Corey talked about where let's just record it and send it off and you give us our score or our feedback based on the rubric, and that's our formal evaluation. But if I'm gonna take the time out of my school day, the money to bust them and feed them, I want it to be something that is a much more educationally focused experience. Mm -hmm. um, where and, and dare I and, say fun. Right, <laughs> right. And, and something too, um, you know, now that I'm out of the K-12 classroom and, and in higher ed, I think that there's really amazing opportunities here for collaboration with universities. And some, some universities already do this, um, do this well, but just more ways for universities to support local schools by offering to house these events, because it's great recruiting as well, um, but also really uh, a great opportunity for future music educators, right, the collegiate students to get to interact with local teachers um, and to ho practice hosting these events and running logistics and things like that. So I think there's a lot of interesting opportunities um, that that could be 
utilized in that way. I love the idea of involving, just like community groups, the universities um, in so many ways. Scott has something to add. Yeah, thanks. Uh, and thanks. For, this is a great discussion. I've got tons of, you know, ideas and such being generated, but I'll, 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 I'll stick to one. And it's the magic wand question. And, and my magic wand, and I, I'm focusing on just, you know, our, our, for instance, here in Washington, our, our regional large ensemble festivals, that sort of thing, um, that, that we re-examine and create even a mission statement. Why are we having them? What is the point of having them? Um, because I don't feel that's been discussed during my teaching career, which is 20 plus years now. So I, I would like to see us all re-examine why, why do we have the festivals? Why do we go to the festivals? What do we want to accomplish from the festivals? And to get back to what Kelly said and our title today, it needs to be fun. It needs to be a positive experience for the students. Let's make a festival festive. So, thanks. Thank you, Scott. And I am grateful for you for um, raising your hand and saying this out loud on a national platform, because I do believe that this is a topic for discussion on the national level for our organization. Um, Yes, and I would love to sit together with my colleagues in that national to state to regional um, MEA landscape and really unpack this concept and start really having a true conversation about it and then work toward real change. Um, I'd like to highlight a, yeah, sorry, sorry, Kelly. I'd like to quickly highlight a comment from the chat from Pam Ivesich. Yes, student voice and choice and have students be the ones to share their reason for selecting this piece of music with the people listening. Um, I love this idea of involving actual student voice and them developing their voice in creating the presentation that they make and really working toward independence of students um, and them engineering their performance on the stage and playing a, a really large role in that performance. Thank you, Pam. I just wanted to remind everybody that our, our MEAs um, fuel NAFME or you know the other way around like your dues get split and they go both directions and these are organizations that are meant to reflect us the music teachers and we th th these aren't just systems that exist and have to continue to exist they are systems that we can change and what it takes is conversations like this one and, um, you know, a, a group of a, a critical mass of people saying, hey, NAFME, why don't we make a mission statement for these festivals? Or why don't we go ahead and not make them or suggest to states that they're they look like this or they're not mandatory or whatever it might be. But that at, is actually something that we as music teachers can accomplish. Um, but it, it kind of takes, it of course takes a lot of work and we're all sort of exhausted. So think, continue throwing out ideas, please, because this group of people can send them forward in an official way. 
Yes, we will. I would love to hear from any other person that would like to speak. Said as we have one minute remaining. <laughs> we can push into a couple more minutes, probably. <laughs> Beth, I, I'll chip in with a quick question, yes. if that's okay. Yes, absolutely. If one of the goals of the programs overall is to encourage lifelong participation and doing of music by the maximum number of students, what kind of things along the lines that you've been talking about would additionally help facilitate that? That's a great question, John, and it goes back to the, the word festive. Um, and for me, just speaking from my perspective as a public school orchestra director, who takes my students to this, these events. The dragon that I chase, and yes, we do chase a lot of dragons in our job. Um, the dragon that I chase is the type of performance where my students, I can see pride coming from that. I can, I can smell it, I can see it, I can feel the pride coming from my students. And um, what I wanna be able to collectively create with my colleagues and my association is how can we create events that are affirming and encouraging and joyful and our students walk away empowered and they walk away um, feeling like they made a contribution and that they wanna do it again. Instead of the gamble that we take every time where uh, we can um, sometimes count on, this is gonna wreck my program. <laughs> if the students didn't get the type of score that they wanted. Well, and I think in addition to making sure that it's a positive experience for students is we wanna create more opportunities, especially as they enter high school that imitate the types of music making that they can find as adults on their own. And I don't know that there's enough bridging happening um, when we go to these, when we focus so much on always being the large ensemble performances, um, because yes, in a lot of areas, there are large community ensembles that, that they can join, um, but maybe that's not something that they know how to go do or how to find. And so thinking about how we can maybe partner with those community groups to show our high students while they're still ours, this is how you continue your craft once you've graduated. Um, and also finding ways that they can learn how to make music with smaller groups, because sometimes you can't always find, you know, large ensembles to participate in, depending on where you, where you are. Um, and also your time as an adult human being. Um, and so just finding ways that we can help show them different pathways to engage in music out past, past being in high school large ensembles. And some of that could tie into to festivals and community opportunities, but some of that is other types of instructional um, items that we, we can work into our classrooms. Or that NAFME and MEAs could curate. Um, and it's just, it's like, sometimes I think it comes down to how do we give kids permission to do this after they leave 
band or orchestra in school? How, how do we like ensure that they feel like they have permission without us standing there and conducting or whatever mm -hmm. to engage in music making as they leave? Mm -hmm. I'll tell you the quickest way to not have someone continue making music is uh, to only teach that these notes and rhythms need to be played in this way only. And that is it. You learned your third trumpet part uh, with precision. If that is all you're doing, that kid is not going to continue making music in their lifetime because they are not equipped with the skills necessary to do that. Right. Um, they might want to, but they might not know how because. Yeah. Right. <laughs> if we're not teaching them how to transpose or compose and improvise and and on those other and uh, and just the rest of the creative process, um, if we're not, and and I think because festivals are so highly valued and take up so much of our class time to prepare for, that the festival itself has to find a way to infuse those values into the preparation process, so that we we are as teachers authorized to use time for that, which is why I would like to see um, festivals change so dramatically, because I think if we're just sort of teaching to the test, right? If, if it's more of a standardized test situation, that's really all, all, all our kids are learning how to do. And I think that, that, it, that we've seen that in math class, for example, um, that, that that does not instill a love of math, preparing for the standardized math test. And um, I, I'm continue to be confused as to why we think it's the best way to do things in music. And I'm zipping. <laughs> and, and also that, um, you know, speaking of our association, we have this document, the national standards, which is based on that creative process or the artistic process. It is literally the artistic process. It's what artists do, whether or not they know it, um, when they do their art. And so um, if we're truly going to, you know, value those standards and value the artistic process, but then be over here and be like, but we've got this also, and it's, you know, really restrictive and you're only focusing in on precision in performance only. Um, it, it's a little bit of, you know, it kind of doesn't blend very well. So I think as an organization, we should really be thinking about what are some ways to align our signature events with our signature documents, our signature standards document to be specific. David Jordan says, thank you for this. I agree with everything you were all saying. I've been teaching high school band and orchestra for over 20 years, and this has weighed heavily on me, especially the last seven or eight years. Our priorities tend to get mixed up. Changes need to be made. Festivals should enhance music education, not hinder it. Thank you, Jordan, for voicing this concern. Um, and I think that you speak for quite a few people. So thank you. And Scott says, 
this has been an excellent discussion. Thank you to everyone for participating. And I couldn't agree more. And I think we are kind of pushing over into the um, overtime arena. We're but, getting the and off. Yes, we're getting the <laughs> and off. But I would like to say thank you to those of you who have joined us tonight. Thank you to this wonderful panel for joining um, the National Council for Orchestral Education and NAFME National. Um, let's continue this conversation. Please reach out to me, the chair of the National um, Council for Orchestral Education, if you'd like to continue this discussion. Um, and please share the recording of this with all of your colleagues. Bye, thank friends. You. Yes, and I would like to also publicly thank John Donaldson from NAFME. Yes. Thank you, John, for um, helping organize this and for helping manage all of this. Whoop, whoop. <laughs> thank you. A million thanks to our listeners, followers, and subscribers. The support we receive monetarily and otherwise helps us to be able to spend time creating a quality product, and it allows us to tap into partnerships and resources to which we wouldn't normally have access. We are stoked about the journey of learning we have ahead of us, and we are delighted you've decided to join.